Hey, welcome back to the Rooted to Live podcast. This is episode number two in the Path to Happiness series, looking at what Jesus says about happiness. Last episode, we considered Christ's teaching, happy or blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is a dependence on God. It's a recognizing of our complete need for him because of our spiritual helplessness and personal unworthiness. Its opposite really is self-sufficiency, a belief of not needing God or a feeling we are good enough on our own. So otherworldly happiness comes or first arrives when we understand that even though we bring nothing but brokenness to God, he still invites us to begin and be in a relationship with him, to be in his kingdom. The next statement of happiness builds on top of that one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So here we see the subjective side of being poor in spirit. Blessed or truly happy are the poor in spirit who mourn. Doesn't it sound like Jesus is saying happy are the sad? What does this mean? In the New Testament, there are several words for our English word mourn. Here, Jesus uses the most intense word, the word used of people when they lose a loved one. So what could Jesus possibly mean in saying happy are those who mourn? Is he talking about people who are just sad in life or that everyone everyone who has had a loss and feels it will be made better? No, uh, the greater context of Christ's sermon here is really speaking of a repentance from sin, if you consider chapter 4, verse 17 in the preceding context. So we could ask, happy are those who mourn, but mourn what? Sin. So let's define sin. Several people have their views, and, and that's okay. I would consider sin being looking to anyone or anything other than God for approval. It starts with believing a false promise from the world above a true promise from God. And all of our sin finds its origin in the desires rooted inside our hearts. Hmm. And over time, our non-mourning hearts become numb, apathetic, even callous. So what Jesus is saying is, happy are those who grieve over sin. Remember, these statements of happiness are not commands. They are descriptions of the happy person. And Jesus says this is a blessed, happy life. We can read the scriptures pointing people to feel the weight of their sin and to mourn over it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Sounds pretty painful. And Jesus is saying... Happy are those, or happy are the people who do this. But I would contend that mourning our sin is truly rare. Our pride usually just isn't interested. Simply because Jesus says it's the best way to live life, the the path to happiness continues by mourning our sin. Or because other scriptures command us, doesn't mean someone is inclined or desirous to take sin so seriously, let alone mourn over it. It reminds me of seeing a parent instruct a child to apologize to someone else for doing something wrong. Have you ever had that awkward experience before of seeing a child being made to say sorry? 
Hey, Timmy. Tell Laura that you're sorry for pushing her. I'm sorry. No, I want you to mean it, Timmy. I said I was sorry. That's not mourning. <laughs> mourning is not simply saying sorry. Uh, saying sorry has become an appeasement tool to get someone to be okay with us. We see the same thing maybe between a husband and wife, where the husband may give a half-hearted, I'm sorry you're hurt. I'm sorry you feel that way. Hmm. What do you want me to say? I said I was sorry last month. Sometimes we're just sorry we got caught, or sorry we're in this situation, or sorry that our thing didn't work out. That's not really godly sorrow or mourning. That's not mourning sin. That's called worldly sorrow, by the way. Second Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 9-10, through 10, we really see that godly sorrow brings repentance that really leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, worldly sorrow justifies or denies sin. It makes excuses for sin, minimizes sin as not being that bad, or um, it's just who I am, or uh, maybe someone who has worldly sorrow would just say, like, well, they did this to me, and so I have the right to do this. Who are you to judge me? See, worldly sorrow shifts blame and lies to self that it's better to not deal honestly with our sin. But true sorrow, or godly sorrow, has a blend of understanding, acknowledgement, and ownership, and is usually accompanied by real honest emotion over our sin. This is why God's Word says in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So we have to ask ourselves, Have I been broken over my own sin lately? The honest answer for most of us usually is no. And the reason why is because we don't take accurate assessments of ourselves, especially if we think we are pretty good people and we don't think our sin is that big of a deal or we don't think we have any sin at all. God's word speaks to that as well in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Bible tells us that all sin is rebellion against God. So murder, stealing, adultery, lying, gossip, divisiveness. It's all against God. And sin always brings death. That's the wage that sin earns. Death. Death to relationships, to friendships, death to unity, death to our bodies, uh, even death to local assemblies, local churches, sometimes because of sin. Ultimately, our sin resulted in Jesus Christ's death. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And the lost are lost because of spiritual blindness and the darkness of sin. God's word says that all have sinned. That means me. That means you. But taking the pressure off you for a second, I'll just share a bit of my life. In my life, I've stolen, gossiped, lied, disobeyed my parents, overate, hated, lusted, been both lazy and a workaholic. I have worshipped people and possessions. I've neglected being gospel-centered in my ministry before. I've been faithless in attempting difficult things. I've been both judgmental and non-confrontational and settling for false peace. I've been a hypocrite, a legalist, and a pagan. I have appeased church people so as to be approved by them. I've, I've been a passive husband, a disengaged father. I've disciplined my children in anger before or out of embarrassment. I've been jealous and envious. I mean, I could go on forever. 
And my sin is serious enough to mourn over because my sin was serious enough for Jesus Christ to die over. And mourning over sin doesn't just, you know, doesn't stop when you first become a Christian, but mourning over our sin is a part of the Christian life until all sin is done. And that's why Jesus uses the word mourn in the tense that he does. The tense that he uses is an ongoing tense. It's an ongoing in life. Why? Because even as saints in Christ, as declared righteous, our sin continues. Hopefully, we become more and more aware of how deep our sin goes and that we see some areas of victory. Then we become more aware of areas where there's loss or defeat and there's room to grow. The closer you get with God, the more you become aware of your sin, which means the greater need to mourn and repent. It's a life of perpetual repentance, but then bearing fruit and keeping with that repentance. So if we are ever going to experience the happiness that Christ offers, we have to see the depth of our sinfulness to the point that it breaks our hearts. The clearer we see our sin, the clearer we see the cross of Jesus and the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. Actually, the clearer we see our sin against God, the dimmer the offenses by others against us will seem. But if we feed our sin instead of killing it, if we love it instead of hating it, if we desire it instead of destroying it, then the outcome will be that we fool ourselves into thinking things are okay and we minimize what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then self-sufficiency sets in and our understanding of our need for Jesus and his sacrifice diminishes. The idea of being poor in spirit, being neglected then. If you have felt the passion for the gospel fading, but you don't know why it's, that, why it's going that way, it's likely as a result of losing sight of the depth of your sin. So if you were to ask someone, or I should say if someone were to ask you, teach me how to mourn. Teach me how to mourn sin. How can we make it real practical? Maybe this is a bit too practical, but it's what I could come up with. <laughs> I would say first, um, mourn specifically. Name the sin. No excuses. Just begin to see specifically your sin. Begin to see what God sees. So mourn specifically. Second, think about the cost of your sin. What does it cost you? What does it cost others in your life? What's the damage been? Third, think about Jesus, of course. Think about his love for you and the price he paid for your sin. Fourth, confess to God for sure. But as James tells us, confess your sins to one another as well so that you may be healed. Why should we confess to God and to another person? Because God uses people as grace agents who will tell us the truth of God's forgiveness and the authentic community will be a comfort. To truly known, be known and accepted brings happiness. Experiencing grace from another person sees really the power of sin's shame fade so mourn specifically, think about the cost of sin, think about Jesus, think, confess to God and another person, and I'll just say here, fifth, um, repent and forsake the sin. When you've confessed the sin to another person after mourning it, you'll, you'll know God's Holy Spirit will empower you to turn from it. See, darkness loves isolation and secret, but being in the light brings freedom. And so if I could just shepherd you for a moment, I just want, I just want to warn you that Satan wants you to um, re-mourn over already dealt with sin. 
But God doesn't do that. God doesn't call us to carry guilt over the things that we did long ago, that we've already mourned, that we've already confessed to another person, that we've already repented of. You don't carry a shame badge any longer if you'd like. Be free. But there's more to this morning. It doesn't just stop with us individually mourning our own sin, but also collectively the sins of the local church. Grief in scripture is both an individual activity and a corporate activity. Here are a few biblical examples of like corporate grief. When Peter first preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, it produced grief over sin for a whole crowd. And their response was, the text says that they were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? They experienced grief of sin, and produced, which reproduced, uh, really produced um, uh, repentance. Another example, Paul found out that one of his letters to the church in Corinth caused godly corporate grief. And he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So what are examples of the kinds of sins that a church should mourn over in relationship to itself? Like crowd or group things to mourn. Well, for a church, the church should mourn when its message becomes anything different than the gospel of Jesus. When its mission becomes anything different than living the gospel of Jesus. When its opportunity for influence in living the gospel of Jesus fades. Think about like a lampstand and the, the, the light uh, and the fire flickering from it um, and fading. When churches should really mourn when its members hijacked Christ's missions for the church for self-interest. This is evidence like in the story of the church in Corinth. Or when it becomes a rigid fortress of legalism rather than, um, I should say, like a ready hospital for the sick. The church should mourn itself uh, when it fails to take steps of faith no longer depending on the Spirit of God. Or when it ceases to give sacrificially. Or when it's not making disciples who will make disciples. Or when it's mature believers stop building into the lives of younger believers. Or when grumbling and gossip and divisiveness are approved of. And when we when we repent of such things, what happens is God's Spirit brings the life of the gospel back into the church. He revives hearts and produces selflessness and sacrificial living. So not only should we, should we mourn our own sin individually, but also collectively as a church we should mourn our sin, our collective sin. There's actually even more to this mourning. We don't just mourn our own individual sin and the corporate sin of the church, but also the sin in our world. God does this himself. In the Old Testament, we read that the prophets relay that God the Father groans over his people's sin. In the New Testament, God the Son, Jesus, grieved was grieved by the sins of all of Jerusalem. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, God the Holy Spirit grieves sin. We see this in Isaiah chapter 63, also in Ephesians chapter 4. So we grieve sin because God grieves sin. We should Mourn over the neglect of the orphan, the poor, the widow, and the refugee. We, we mourn all forms of abuse, human trafficking, and corruption. There is a lot to mourn over in our world. Hmm. So how does happiness relate to mourning? I think the answer is, our mourning drives us to the cross, and our sorrow makes us look for the heart and hand of God. 
and will find it. Think about Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 again. Blessed are those who mourn. Now the back end promise, for they will be comforted. The word here for comfort is a, is a strong word too. It, it means um, to call to the side of, in order to instruct, encourage, and console. I think console is what fits the context here. It is used of someone who has been called to our side in the time of need. So comfort comes from the context of God's engagement with us in our mourning. In Psalm 32, we are reminded of David really just grieving his sin. When he, when he woke up to his sin and mourned and repented, the forgiveness he experienced was comforting. And that's also available to us. You may know the scripture in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's where comfort comes from. It comes from God in the form of forgiveness. We receive comfort in being fully known and loved and accepted as God removes our shame. He's the lifter of our head, the psalmist writes. The mourning is only temporary, but the comfort is eternal and it starts now and will be fully realized in eternity. Because in the end, there'll be no more mourning of sin. God will wipe away every tear of shame. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, the scripture says. His compassion, by his compassion, he removes repentant sin. Buried in the bottom of the sea, Micah chapter 7 verse 19 says, the scriptures say he remembers them no more, meaning he doesn't use our sin against us anymore. The truly happy are those who know the comfort of his forgiveness and presence in their lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news of great joy because it invades dreadful news of great sorrow of our sin. Jesus steps in and changes everything, bringing us to to God the Father as his own. And the result is that he gets the glory and we receive the ultimate happiness. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mm -hmm.